Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy. My co-host is Steve Walsh. Today's show is the second side of the sick volume of the South London playlist, The Alumni. Last week we played the first five tracks, Blur, Claxons, Jamie, Pink Floyd and Humphrey Littleton. And today we've got six more artists that went to university in South London. You can hear last week's episode on southlondonhardcore.com and on iTunes. Our guest for both shows is Stephen Graham, lecturer at Goldsmiths College. Before we get back into the playlist, let me remind you that South London Hardcore episode 150 will be live at Holdfest. Holdfest is a festival of live podcasts at the Cinema Museum, just near Elephant and Castle, and also features Process and Daniel Ruiz Tyson and some special guests. Tickets are £5 plus booking fee, and they are available now from holdfastnetwork.com slash holdfest. Track six, Block Party, Helicopter. from Silent Alarm, the debut album from 2004. Russell Lizak, the guitarist, went to London Southbank University and uh, dropped out weeks before graduating. Well, doesn't make sense, does it? Mm. To study, uh, he was studying sociology to go on tour with Block Party. So, you know. The right choice. Easy choice, wasn't it? Easy choice. I love this, um, you know, I was saying earlier about energy. It's just like, it's so full on um, I think they're great musicians. I'm sure Stephen will be able to sort of tell me how uh, how that's not correct, possibly. But, you know, <laughs> rock, rock musicians. You know, I think the drummer's great. You know, the, the, he's a brilliant guitarist, I think. And um, it's a great track, man. In maybe about the third record, I think the vocalist becomes a bit of a problem. You know, sometimes you can't look past the vocalist mm. and he gets annoying, really. Um, and his lyrics are... Uh, you could, might say his lyrics are never all that, but did you listen to solo stuff? Kind of comes a problem. I listened to the to yeah his uh, debut. Uh, did Is that what it's called? It's called the album. Dude. No, I don't know the name. I was about to say that would be unforgivable, wouldn't it? Well, like, yeah. Well, let it happen once because like Block Party's fourth album is called Four, isn't it? As is One Directions. <laughs> Beyonce. As is Beyonce's. Right. Led Zeppelin. <laughs> no, let's sure, just untitled, isn't it? It's untitled. <laughs> yeah, this is another one of those bands where I wasn't really this. I've I've heard a lot of and I've heard Block Party before. I don't think I've heard this one before, but it's good, isn't it? Riffy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Riff man. It's one of the things that when I play it on the guitar, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I could. The thing that struck it. me reading about it though, it's been featured on the video games Guitar Hero Three: Legends of Rock, Guitar Hero On Tour, Thief Row Six, Project Off and Racing Three. Burnout Revenge, Colin McRae Dirt 2, 
Mark Echo's getting up contents under pressure. Just like it, I you can't the same play company video owns game. all those games and they just license it out. Once. But the thing is, it is the sort of music I would like to drive a fast. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Also, in terms of Guitar Hero, like I know I don't know what the relationship between playing a guitar and playing Guitar Hero is because I don't think I've ever played it. The but only relationship is the shape of the thing you're holding. <laughs> no, it's the it's what would be called the density reference. So how often, what the space is between the notes, kind of thing. That's the only kind of oh, correspondence. Okay. But like, but what I was going to say, because there's no high low, there's no no, you don't go anywhere, do you? But it's it's quite easy to play and sounds impressive. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, big, I, I can huge. sort of blast it out, and I'm terrible. Do you know what I mean? So I can see the appeal. I can see the appeal. I've got a block party story, but I'm not too sure on details. Babak, who I'm going to be talking to a process at uh, Holdfest in January. I was chatting to him a couple of weeks ago at a gig. And he was telling me about his... Uh, he's been in a few bands. Um, this weekend on Facebook, I put a photograph up of uh, the cheque he got this year from uh, PRS. 12 quid. 12 quid. So right, still gets, I, I don't think... Well, this is the thing. He, he was in a band uh, a few years back. A good few years back. And had a friend who was looking to join a band and Babak was like, well, we're full up. Mm-hmm. And then and another guy was putting together Dave a Gilmore. band. <laughs> <laughs> and another guy was putting together a band and Babak was like, no, we're all happy in this band. But I know a guy who wants to be in a band and uh, that band was Block Party. Right. So Babak's band that he was in at the time, um, sort of Babak sort of helped Block Party meet. So they put him on um, the support uh, thing for a gig at Old Court. Oh, right. So Babak's band uh, played Old Court and uh, then they went, should we just stop being a band now? Because we've just played Old School. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> just leave it there. So our last gig is Old School. Cool. Yeah, just leave it there. Isn't it? So they just, sort of, they just sort of stopped us playing Old School. Cool. But yeah, he sort of helped put Block Party together. Nice. Mm. Oh, I'm pleased he did, Steve. Pleased he did. Yeah, I'd say, um, yeah, they, they, uh, it's not something I'm going to sort of explore any further. But um, I enjoyed it. Were you were you listening to a lot of kind of rock music at this time? Yeah, this was the end. Well, I said the end. Claxons is two thousand six. Is two thousand four. Yeah, two thousand six. When I, I was listening to like yeah, loads of rock music, and yeah. about two thousand six seven, I guess I sort of just dropped off completely. Yeah, dropped off for me before. That's why things like Block Party from afar, I always thought, oh, they look out. They look kind of interesting. But like you, I kind of never really got into them. So listening to this, I was like, oh, I might give it. A- Ten years before I would have bought their albums. Just would have owned them. The yeah, first, no, definitely. Well, the first doubt. album, it's all like this. Without the first doubt. album. No, it's not all like this. There's um, there's a couple of slow ones as well, which I also think are brilliant. But there's a song called Banquet, which is kind of... Oh, it's got this guitar riff going from, it, from ear to ear and you're kind yeah, of... Yeah, uh, panning. Headphones, yeah, What's panning. their really famous one? Uh, this, one? this is probably their biggest hit, isn't it? Right. So. I mean, that song called The Prayer, which was a hit, wasn't it? No, no, that, you wouldn't know that. There always seems to be a kind of a whininess to them. I think that's why I was put off. I never really investigated is yeah, that I right? don't think that's accurate, no, really. Okay. But um, any, yeah, so I mean, I highly those first two records. On the second record, what's the second one called? Uh, Weekend in the City. Oh yeah, yeah. Which has got the prayer on it, and it's got um, hunting for witches, which is not the right title. But another song, um, the, the opening track is great as well. Yeah. It all seems really sort of punchy. That's what. Yeah, it is, it. isn't it? It yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. Paul Epworth producing. He's oh, yeah. done loads of stuff, and but I think this is kind of I don't know his signature piece, maybe. Quick quiz for you, Steve. Go on. Oh, but for both of you, right? Whoever answers first wins. This will be fair, because one of us is a music lecturer. <laughs> no, but the other one is It's not. <laughs> Which university did Kelly Okereke go to? Oh, uh... Is it in South London? 
It's King's College. You know, oh, the right you know, Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, he's always there. Yeah, 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 next yeah. to like Michael Faraday or something. I went, I went there. <laughs> to your King's College University? Yeah, I did my master's there. Right. How did you, uh, what did you think of it? Didn't like it. Very stifling atmosphere. Well, that's a good thing you stretch your legs at Goldsmiths. Exactly. Right? That's why I went to Goldsmiths. Track seven, Placebo, Nancy Boy. So talking of albums and singles that I would have just instinctively bought if they were released between sort of 94 and 9, I own this oh, as yeah. a single, I bought the albums... And uh, just hadn't listened to it for years, and uh, it's alright, isn't it? It's not, you know, it's not good. It's not great. It's, you know, it's listenable. It's good fun. Again, bouncy and punchy. I think it's great and also really bad. Yeah, like it. it's not something where I'm like, oh, I didn't listen to it and go, why haven't I dug out my placebo albums? But I, it is. But against kind of what you're saying, I, I, there is a real kind of, there is a, there is a real um, kind of. Ugliness or kind of something to it, which I just, I, it repels me. Yeah, something to do with the. Is it those guitars? No, the guitars I find fine. His voice, first of all. Yeah. And the second of all, the way they're kind of using, yeah. using kind of gender ambiguity, sexuality as a it's kind really of. It's really clunky, isn't it? It's, it's very clunky, yeah. And but at the same time, they did hit on something quite, um, quite. I don't know, ingratiating with this. It's quite kind of. Um, Enticing. There's yeah. something about it. That's no, it's not badly really... put together at all. Yeah. But it's like so earlier this year, late last year, the whole sort of Britpop thing where people were like talking mid nineties. It would have been last year, wouldn't it? The sort of like oh, people like the anniversary of it. Yeah, there was an anniversary. Yeah, yeah, people were talking about like lists of, and that list time's not all the lists. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's to a lot weird of stuff to think of it in terms of Britpop though. Yeah, but that's the thing. It did because that, that's the thing that really struck me about listening to it. Like I was listening to this along with all the other stuff. Yeah. But it does feel um, like a real sort of slap in the face for the likes of Blur and Oasis that were trying to sort of go. No, you don't need to go to America because suddenly it is. Well, this is the suede line of Britpop. Yes, isn't absolutely. It? Yeah. I've, I've got it down as like grungy suede. Grungy it's like suede. suede. Yeah. It's grunge and it's suede, suede and... doing like Alice in Chains or yeah. suede doing Corduroy yeah. <laughs> with with three footnotes to David Bowie. Yes. Oh. But the thing about it is, it's like, with bands like this, and with Marilyn Manson and Beautiful People, I feel like Placebo were always trying to do something with their songs. They managed to do it with this song. I don't think they ever managed to do it with any other song. Marilyn Manson managed to do what he was trying to do with Beautiful People. Managed to do it really well. Maybe fluked upon it, but never managed to do it with any other song. Um, space, you know, Spaceman, Jazz, yeah, whatever yeah. that. Really hit on something yeah, like that. Yeah. But then tried to do it again and again and didn't really get there. So I feel like with Nancy Boy, they, they happened upon something really quite effective. But they never quite. But the thing that really struck me as well reading about it, this was the fourth single from the album. Yeah. Like they listened to the album and went, "There's three songs that sound a better chance Isn't of that being amazing." Hit. And you as I remember the album, and I had no idea, you know, yeah. from recollections, but it just seems remarkable. Yeah. Like, I can't think of any other uh, placebo songs. If you think of placebo, well, you know, pure mean, pure morning. I, I, I can't remember how that goes. Brendan knees. Oh, Brendan knees. Yeah, yeah. Which was also a B side originally, apparently. I did a Nickelback version there. <laughs> every me and every you that was big wasn't it because it was on the Crawl Attention soundtrack like, it's the opener it seems like a, just a, a facsimile of Nancy Boy 
Right. Yeah. Just yeah not yeah, as not interesting. Similar, yeah, yeah. Yeah. As I say, I, I don't have any sort of strong. No. I never, as a kid, I never liked it. But you know, I was, uh, you know, kind of homophobic teen, and you kind of but would barely listen to a record if a woman was on it, let alone, <laughs> <laughs> you know, let alone man in a dress. Such extreme homophobia. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you, no, but you know what I mean. Like you kind of, you know, hate homo sapiens. You're like a, a teenage bigot. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know, that kind of casual... Well, I don't, Jack. I was, I was buying the placebo singles because I was a very enlightened <laughs> But yeah, I also, going back, I'm sort of... It's almost relieved that I was right not to listen to it. <laughs> but for the wrong reasons. <laughs> well, something that I did uncover interests me in it. It's a very sort of vague, uh-huh. really unrelated point. In the video, the drummer's face is blurred constantly. Because he was still under contract to another band. <laughs> so, right. And I, you look at him and think, oh, it's just an effect. It's a very sort of effect heavy yeah. sort of juddery yeah. video. But apparently it was a deliberate thing to avoid oh. getting sued, which I thought was quite interesting. He got a. Um, he studied drama at Goldsmiths, and two years ago he received an honorary fellowship. Indeed. Yeah, I'm not happy about that. Yeah, what's the point? Yeah. What's, you know, people point, are doing I can tell you from sitting in meetings where these things are being decided. Well, they, well, well the people can't is, see Steve rubbing his fingers. Well, this new mic is good. Is <laughs> the point is publicity. For the university, yeah. yeah for oh, the person. Yeah, well, I mean... Like Stephen well, Gerrard. Try and, you okay, know, okay. Stephen Gerrard <laughs> in a university gown. Viral, <laughs> wasn't it? PJ Harvey got an honorary doctorate last year. Now, this, the, the reason that she got it rather than other people in the ring were Burt Bacharach because... Well, it's a long story, but one of one of my colleagues had been at a party where they met his manager and promised that they could get him an honorary doctor if he wanted. Which you assume? Are we going to put this in? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah fine. <laughs> <laughs> was one, and there's a couple other people. But um, it was decided that Peter Harvey had, had more of the spirit of Goldsmiths and cachet, and everyone liked her. Yeah, and you know, so there was some kind of attempt to make it coherent why he gave it to her, but. It's just a publicity thing. It's to recognise their their place in the world as well. It's I just, just don't understand. Like it's to tie together. That you've the been two. to the, you've, all the stuff you did. You probably would have had modules on that. So here you go. Like, will we get one, Steve, at some point from like Thames Polytechnic or something? He wasn't available for interview. If you go onto like the Goldsmiths announcement page or press release page, just to say, it's got like uh, this person will be collecting award this day. This is the interview. Yeah. Uh, contact details and with, uh, it's just like Brian Molko won't be available but he, there is a quote from him and he says he was very fond memories of the time spent there uh, helped shape me into the artist that I am today I'm particularly grateful for the freedom to take risks which the staff encouraged and for the ambition they nurtured in us no matter how brazen or off the wall it appeared so that's kind of a vital yeah. point isn't it oh absolutely that's very Goldsmithian and, and he is a very Goldsmithian student you know he is typical for what you'll see walking around the campus Track eight, Natasha Bedingfield, these words. October 2004, number one hit. Trying to find the magic, trying to write a classic. In my notes, I've got, got to number one, exclamation mark, question mark. Yeah. Because I haven't liked a lot of, well, a couple of songs on this, but this is the only song for this playlist that I hated. Can I just drop another lyric in? Go on. 
read some Byron Shelley and Keats. Yeah. Well, so hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. That's the most notable part of this song, and yeah. it's clearly, <laughs> clearly ripping off the Pet Shop Boys, Che Guevara <laughs> and Debussy to a disco beat from Left to My Own Devices. Flagrant. It's <laughs> <laughs> their best line, and she just cribbed it. Why does she sound American? I don't understand. Oh, come on. She's not, she's not from England, though, is she? Yeah, she is. Uh, she's from, like, High Wycombe or something. No, she's from, like, Suffolk or something. She's from Haywood's Heath, right? Yeah, she's she's from, Heath, right? right I'll yeah, give you that. Yeah, but yeah. no, but her brother's from South Africa, and they've got... Right. Oh, hence the line, I'm living in Africa, I'm living in Jamaica. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> I let him off now, I let him off. But yeah, one of their parents was foreign, Steve. Right, so you get an American accent. I didn't realise this is how I think I don't think it was American. Uh, yeah, anyway. I mean this is this is the history of pop have you not heard the history of pop music? <laughs> People <laughs> don't sing except for Dolores Except for Dolores O'Reard and no one sings in their own accents. <laughs> dem uh, guns and dem bombs. <laughs> What's his name? Phil Daniels. Oh yeah, well, Russell Brown. Confidence is a yeah. um, confidence is a preference. So her brother won a Grammy alarmingly. Well, no, yeah. the Grammys are gotta a, get through a this. atrocious set. No, of fittingly, he yeah, gotta, get, uh, gotta get through this. And then she sort of blasts him out the wall with this. She does. <laughs> yeah. she, she does very well in America for a brief period of time. Yeah, she does work very. Hmm. <laughs> it was a reason why she did well. <laughs> so this is this is. Uh, so you're saying she sounds American because she's got a foreign parent. Why I didn't say got, she's out of the Why has this got such a boring plodding beat? Is that something to do with an uncle or something? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Yeah, it's why is this song so bad? Is it because her granddad is... It's just like... Stephen, why did this get to number one? Oh, come on. Someone asked me the other day, why is Ed Sheeran so popular? <laughs> I just go... It makes catchy tunes, isn't it? That is well, why I mean, they're they're never, never, that's always the answer in it because they make catchy songs. Heard of, I wouldn't they're know. Always, what, I imagine that. You know, that's not what it gets. Oh, yeah, oh, I would have thought Strummy singer songwriter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, 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 that's the Pharrell produced thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's Foray into hip hop. Yeah, I wasn't getting any of that from um, But um, he has a good, he, Ed Sheeran has a good song at the moment called. Um, and how's that spelled? I'm sure I remember. Anyway, but someone asked me why is that Sheeran popular? And the only answer, as with any of these people, is they hit a sweet spot. Mm. What the sweet spot is is unpredictable. It varies case by case. In his case, it's he's being positioned as, you know, an authentic singer-songwriter. He's playing a guitar, but he's also hitting the pop crowd because, as we've discussed in a previous podcast, he doesn't sing vowels in a normal way. <laughs> um, and with Natasha Benningfield, she's a pretty person who's singing music that has... Diaristic kind of content, which people love. Dire. I've got some quotes here that might help. Okay. Um, uh, someone on All Music wrote that the track was near perfect and merged the rhythms of flavour of hip hop and R&B with unique melodies and Benningfield's vocal confidence. Where is the hip hop and R? I read that on your Wikipedia. I thought, what? She says it, isn't it? Read some Byron, Shelley, and Keats. You recited over a hip hop beat. <laughs> it's like with that uh, blur, uh, blue track, isn't it? One love for the hip hop yeah, beats. Yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Oh yeah, <laughs> not not the RZA, is it? On this, the BBC called it a classic love song with a really catchy tune. Well, it's catchy, and this is the thing. That, I mean, it bothers no, me. No, it's, it's, it's consistently insist, catchy. But people the way insist they don't understand why things are popular. And like you say, the sweet spot. But it's, it's obvious that most of the time things are catchy, and they catch on. No, but catchiness yeah. isn't. Catchiness is cultural, you know, it happens within a context. There's no such thing as just catchiness. Yeah, I don't know, man, I think there is. There's not. Well, your sense of what's catchy is different from what a Japanese person's sense of what's catchy is, so that, that therefore, you're wrong. 
Look at thingy, man. Gangnam style. <laughs> you know what I mean? That it, was broke, it broke YouTube. It broke YouTube. It broke YouTube. No, but this one, the catchiness in it, whatever the, whatever term you want to use, I just find it so off-putting that these... It's just pushing that note at us. Another critic wrote you, that you, uh, Beddingfield's naming of the famous poets, George Byron, Percy Bysshe Shelley and John Keats in the song, enables the listener to, and this is a quote, Almost hear the classic poetry over a drum machine. How? Yeah. I was listing the, the names of the writers. This is the mystery, isn't it? This yeah, is the magic, I mean, this is, this is why I'll, I'll never write another one single. I do want to say at this point that I um, I would defend pop music to my grave, but... Even this, this one? No, this one. not yeah, this. this is the no. thing. There is a line, isn't there? There's, there is I a line. I don't dislike I discovered what Natasha Benningfield did for me was. <laughs> it showed me that there is a line. Are you residing tomorrow? No, but it showed <laughs> me that do this it was anymore. true. I was listening to this just thinking, no. Yeah. No. Anyone want to guess what, which of the two South London universities she went to? <laughs> Greenwich University. She studied psychology, yeah. It was written by Steve Kipner and Her. Wayne Wilkins. Does she not write it? She, she's got a credit on it. Has she, yeah? Yeah, Because oh, yeah. right, right, right. I thought that as well. Because I was like, because the, the song is about very, the difficulty of writing a song. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. yeah, what you do is you get these guys to come in and do it. Oh, <laughs> so, no, 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 no. When I say these guys, I mean this group of people rather than... Um, well, we don't know. How, what, how many people are credited? I thought it was just those two, but if it's... Uh, oh, well, I, I, sure saw, I, could be, um, uh, I saw a credit with her name and like four other people. Um, but yeah, they wrote yeah. Genie in a Bottle, which is good. Great. It? And uh, they wrote Kelly Rowland Stoll, which I think is one of the worst songs I've ever seen. Don't know, no. I've ever seen Just a video for Genie like in a Bottle. Times. Um, like Genie in a oh, Bottle. Gotta love me the right way. I think me if the right way. You wanna... <laughs> gotta rub me the right way. Yeah, you said love. You said love. No, gotta rub. Oh, sorry. Gotta rub me the right Rubbing way. Rubbing and loving in my world is a thin line it? between them. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Kelly Rowland Stoll, which is absolutely abysmal. Don't know that one, but I won't listen to it. Mary had the same size hands as Marilyn Monroe. That's one of the lyrics. Like, that's why it's a tragedy that she, she didn't make it or died or something. Um, and uh, Beyonce, the thing is, though, if got Sweet Dreams. God. It, I'm getting out of my seat. <laughs> And uh, Wayne Wilkins has got a record label called Croydon Boy, Steve. So he's bringing you back in, getting you back interested. <laughs> Are you either of you aware of the song um, Have You um, Have You Heard the Word by the the Beatles? No, exactly, not the Beatles. Have you heard the word? Is no, up. not that, not that. There's a song called Have You Heard the Words, right? And it's the words by a band words. called Is It Foot F U T or the Foot? And um, people thought it was a Beatles bootleg. It came out in like 1970. And it's Morris Gibb from uh, the Bee Gees. And this guy is one of the people in it, Kipner. Oh, uh, Oh, that was the thing where people thought it was like a secret Beatles project. Yeah. Right. And like, because he's doing a John Lennon impression. And it sounds like it's from 1967. I'll put a link up on the... the uh, Twitter and Facebook.com slash Alphabon Hardcore. But um, yeah, that was fascinating because I'd never heard of it. But it's yeah, like. Uh, I need to go and listen to that. Kind of, it's feeding into that conspiracy, Steve, probably. Number one. Well, I mean, not number one matters, but it's just like. What's this? There's one musical idea in it, and it's oversold and overplayed, but you know the bit, you know where it suddenly changes from. And it. Dum, dum, dum. So you get three. Dum, dum against the four. The, so. Well, I didn't. These words are my own. From my heart. So the beat right, is kind right. of arrested, so there's a... To me, that catches my ear. Bruce the chords together. D-E-F. <laughs> and Elizabeth's just like, I'm suffering from a disorder. A-D-D. Isn't it? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There you go. It's worse than I remember. Uh, I, I, as normal, I think I've got the tracks in the wrong order, but I'm going to just dive back in with track eight, Hawkwind. 
Bons Kávi. South London University attendee who I now cannot find any information on where he went. <laughs> I don't know how he ended up on the list. Did either of you find out? Uh, I didn't check. So I we're just going to yeah, have no, to assume that was the case. No, right? I'm going gonna, gonna, gonna to say Campwell. He feels well Campwell. Yeah, right, right, right. We'll make it even out on it. Should we say Wimbledon? Just <laughs> <laughs> what if he's listening or is he dead? Uh, probably neither. Let me run. Probably neither. From the album Space Ritual. Uh, a 1973 live double album, which is, I think, seen by many as like the definitive or the kind of key Hawkwind album. Oh, space rock album, yeah. even if you like. Um, one of the great prog covers as well, isn't it? It's this kind oh, yeah. of Venus type figure, kind of stigmata in water out of her hands and with like an all C and I and like some wild cats and stuff. And it's not just a gatefold, it opens out into six, I believe. So, I mean, it's an hour and a half, isn't it? The album, this yeah. track's about 10 minutes. I'd only ever heard Silver Machine before. Oh, yeah. And I he loved, wrote that, didn't he? I love this. Or I thought Kobe, this was yeah. brilliant. It's great. Yeah. And I'm definitely going to be listening to more. I thought it was just like so rich. Reminded me of Harkwind, and I thought, oh, yeah, I need to go back into this. Yeah, world. never. So I think, um, and again, it's a generational thing. I think growing up, it was Lemmy just looking a bit like, a, oh, I just thought it was all sort of like metally greaser rock stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And nothing else. And then you go back and read about it, and you're like, Calvert and Moorcock, and this huge sort of. Obviously, there's also uh, Topless Women striding around the stage. Well, this whole sort of odd space rock opera thing yeah. going on with the stage show. But just the sound of it, and particularly this, this live sound as well. Just, you know, I was trying to imagine being there, and I, it just, I imagine it just be overwhelming. Yeah. Leaving aside the fact that everyone in the audience, including the band, were on every psychedelic drug available at the time. Which is important because it is really a drugging of rock's pulse, isn't it? It's a drugging Absolutely, of yeah, yeah. the momentum in rock music. Which happens with Sabbath and happens with all those acid rock bands. It seems to me the key to what's happening here. It's really great though. Lemmy sort of goes on a re- reverse of the typical journey of a musician in a way, doesn't he? You know, you imagine people starting off in these kind of punky bands. I say punky, you know, kind of yeah, rough, rough and, garage, and, then, yeah. and then going into something like this. Well, like mm. the journey of rock, like pro- progressive rock, the clues in the name, isn't it? But it's so bizarre to go from this to Motorhead. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sort of. I'm not in a gut motorhead. I've never listened to them, but but yeah, you're right. He's like, he, what is he? Forty years old, and he thinks he's going to tear the arms off his uh, denim jacket. <laughs> does he? Does seem an odd thing to sort of uh, decide to do. He had had a lot of drugs though. So. <laughs> Simon King, machine gun drum rolls. Do you want to talk about those, Stephen, for for about ten minutes? <laughs> so, um, music of the spheres. What does that mean? Well, music of the spheres is. Uh, an ancient concept, which doesn't have to do with musical sound. It has to do with a music theory concept from Greece, and specifically from people like Boethius, who's an early music theorist, in the kind of 4th, 5th, 6th century, so after the kind of classical 
period. And it's just about the kind of harmony of the universe, the idea that um, the universe is in harmony and we can put numbers to that and it's a kind of has a music to it. And that was becomes a kind of a, a key cornerstone for people to use music as a kind of a prestige wing of of the state, if you like, because music becomes this beautiful harmonic, um, beautifully harmonic uh, art that's reflecting some natural harmony or order. Um, but why is that a? I don't know. There's some link to. Well, it would be based on the space ritual is uh, based on the music of the spheres. Well, as you say, the music of the spheres would have been. It's it's this whole thing about the idea of early science being very much linked to the occult, being very much linked to the natural world. So mm-hmm. it was based on observation, and as you say, it was the idea of the alignment of the planets was seen as a divine plan. Yeah. So the the sort of space and relationship between them would be a natural, beautiful, holy space, and the sort of the timing and movement of them. So. You know, mathematics has influenced. You know, all, all these things were drawn from it, including, as you say, theories of harmonics. Yeah. So, for someone like Calvert, or well, people like Calvert and Moorcock, to sort of take those ideas, ancient ideas that, as they had scientific and occult properties, and then build a show around it, would be so sort of rich and redolent. Yeah. Sectioned at one point, Robert Calvert. Yeah, struggled throughout his life. Apparently, was bipolar, I believe. Chapter nine, James Blake. The Wilhelm Scream. Enfield and studied a degree in popular music at Goldsmiths. But wanted it to before. be classical. Yeah, did he? Well, a couple of years in, he got. I I just missed him, um, so which is annoying because I really like his music, so I would have liked to teach him. But um, could have ruined it, there, Steve, couldn't you? Right? Could have just could have ruined it. Could have just turned that up, up a bit. <laughs> Stop. No, but I wouldn't be teaching him music. I'd be teaching him ideas. Exactly. That's what I'm worried about. <laughs> <laughs> um, but now, yeah, two years into it, he got—he was very sick of the whole thing. He didn't like being there, and he wanted to swap to the classical program. Bit of insider knowledge for you there. Didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> so he submitted as his final piece uh, his clavier work EP. EP, which is his—I think his best. Well, this depends what argument, but a lot of people see this as the kind of what was released as that EP. See that as the kind of richest bit of his work because it really seems the thing with him obviously is that it's this weird mix of dubstep dub kind of acidy kind of weird half half heard half present ghostly kind of dubstep it's like burial I guess but he's singing the samples rather than just having samples but the early EP where is where it's most ghostly I guess 
So a lot of people saw that as a really kind of rich possibility for that kind of music. And then he 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 builds the songs more into the into songs as he goes along, so they become less kind of ghostly versions of themselves and become actual kind of song constructions. Um, but yeah, he submitted that as far as I know for. With three, there's three there's major projects in the final year of the degree. He's picked two out of the three of them. One is creative performance, where you put on a show. One is a creative research project, where you do a recording like an EP, usually around some kind of theme. And one's a research essay, which is an essay. So you want to write a big essay, you do that. So you pick two out of them. So that would have been one of those three. Uh, okay, and then oh, you just did a live show, yeah. Or yeah. you couldn't do an essay. But the live shows are great because it's yeah. it, it's um, so it's a month long thing. It's in the Albany in Deptford. Long, long show. Month long. It's what? No. So there's so many students to get through. So they do four a night, and they've half an hour. And they do the lights. They do everything themselves, and it's really, really cool. And you get you get kind of 150, 200 people every night in the theater. It's amazing. You, you should go, go along. Oh, you have to go to the more. No, no, I don't. I've only been to a few. Um, I'm gonna. I'm probably gonna be marking some next year. Yeah, so that's what I mean. Some. Yeah. Yeah. No, I haven't marked any yet, but uh, it's really cool. You should both come along actually to one because yeah, definitely. You'll not see, listeners, um, you're not invited. Everyone's <laughs> invited. No, but oh. really. <laughs> <laughs> Jack said <laughs> they really weren't going actually because it is kind of you see the next generation of, yeah, right. you'll see some you, well, you'll see indie interesting land. things you'll see you indie landfill else. but you'll see really well you see indie landfill really <laughs> definitely there's always young Before white boys you always see young white boys with guitars still even in Goldsmiths doing the music pop music stuff they're there doing their so songs kids are should... forming a band called Indie Landfill <laughs> <laughs> laughing at us in 10 years time when they're uh, <laughs> white boys with guitars we'll change their name <laughs> but, uh, you do see interesting electronic stuff and yeah but they're really worth going on that's an interesting structure to the course because obviously at that point you can decide whether it's a theory of music or performing music well the whole thing with the course is that and this, this does go for a lot of degrees but especially so in our, in our programmes it becomes much more self-directed as you go along. So the first year, you've got compulsory modules where everyone's kind of brought up to a certain level. And then as you go along in second year, you can, if, because we have kind of composition, production, academic stuff, um, performance stuff, you can really lean towards any of those directions you want. So by the third year, if you want to be a performer, you can be doing mainly performance stuff. So it's really, really great. So it's not a set kind of imposed curriculum, you know. Did he get a first? I believe he got a first. No, he did get a first. I read it in the Telegraph. And he got near full marks for the EP. He got about 80. Wasn't out of like 81. Well, you'd never go more than about... No, I don't have 100. But you'd never go more than about 85. Really? What about... Well, you'd have to do like Abbey Road or something to... No, you couldn't. You couldn't possibly. The reason <laughs> well, you could do Abbey Road. I know this thing, but I understand that. But... The reason it's out of... CD. Still got a cellophane on it. <laughs> Uh, but it has to be over 100 just because it makes sense because it's easier to think of but but you can't percentage. get like uh, a first so first class honours is 70 and above yeah the kids are cheering and saying to me the other day look um, uh, was kind of got an E for my English club. I was like what? he's like E I was like what, what, what happened? he was like excellent I was like whoa uh, he goes excellent good poor I was like what happened to ABC or 1, 2, 3 well, do we, well we don't have ABCs we have firsts 2, 1s 2, 2s yeah yeah but, so first will be 70 up will be 70 up and you'd never usually go above 85 to 90 it depends lecture to lecture but um, it just becomes meaningless so Stephen I have to ask you like a theoretical question yeah so you're doing the marking yeah right well for right back a few years you're using a real life case KEB comes in with uh What's it called? KB on the dance floor or something? <laughs> Out at a party. What's it called? The big KB track we covered on the show once. Um, KB on a mission. On a mission, yeah. She right. drops KB on a mission. What are you giving that out of 100? It's a, it's a false question because the context will be so different. It will be, it will, first of all, it would have an accompanying bit of writing, 
where she was... Liner notes. Well, kind of. It's a, in the case of the performance, they all have to do a manifesto where they're kind of talking about the, the ideas behind the show. So it can't just be a kind of a, an, un, an un-theorized a yeah. thing. It has to be a kind of a conceptual... has some kind of conceptual basis. Um, it's almost like a scientific... The concept is I'm, I'm on a mission. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose it's like a scientific thing where you go, the aim of this experiment is to do this and the method I'm going to use is this and the result is this. Do you know what I mean? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Down no, yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so it's a no, thing yeah. where you can't just hang in a song and go, it is what it is, guys, because no, that's yeah. just a cheat. Because like, you can go, oh, it, it, inherently it's a piece of art, so therefore it gets 60%. I mean, the thing is, it would be great in a way if they could just hand in music, but there has to be a critical kind of response to it from them, because one of the things on the degree is that they're theorising their practice as creative people. So, so anyway, in answer to your question, it would depend, it would depend on, if, so if she handed that in as a recording, you would look at how technically accomplished it was, you can Questions of taste are always going to inform it, but they shouldn't really come in. So people will have been marking James Blake who can't stand that kind of music, but they will have given them those high marks because they can see it's really accomplished technically, creatively. There's a real voice there. I mean, it becomes a little bit woolly then, of course, when you're marking creative work on those kind of hard measures. But um, it's quite easy to do, really. It's quite, it's not... Maybe I'll get into that. <laughs> I don't mean easy yeah. in the sense that it's, it's like it's, there is a there is a kind of a rational basis to measuring creative work by numbers. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. Have you there's have so you much. Any... There's a lot of technical competency. There's a to, lot of things that go into it. Yeah, and then there's the writing, and then there's the way they're framing it on stage. There's the actual way the music is constructed, the way it's performed. If it's a performance, there's a lot of things that you can respond to. So yeah. I I mean I guess I've not listened to much dubstep really, or contemporary classical. So I mean this is this statement doesn't mean much. But when I list, first listened to James Blake, I was like, this is unlike anything I've ever heard. Yeah. And is there is there an element of truth to that? Even if you have listened to a load of that stuff. Well, it's it's it, it's braiding together things in a way that not many other people have done. Um, yeah, I mean I, I when I heard him, I thought this is really interesting. Because he's slowing down um, dubstep. He, I mean, it's burial, but he's singing, and it's not. It's, it's basically slowed down burial, and he's singing, and it's very emotive as well. Because his voice is very kind of emotive, isn't it, James Blake? So there's that yeah. element as well to it. So, um, but yeah, it is quite. It is quite unique, isn't it? I really enjoyed it. I can't imagine where or when I'd listen to it. Just generally, I know it's washing the answer, up, and but stuff. yeah. And what I you want to do, Steve? But listen I can't imagine to the like, putting it album, on. Man. That's the thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, listening to it, I enjoyed it, but I can't imagine a time where I'm like, I want to listen to some yeah. ghostly voice. I've listened, I've listened, doing. It's his first record, I've listened to it so many times. Right. Do you like his second one? I do, yeah, not, not as much. Not as it's much. Not, it's not, I've not lived with it in the same way. It's not a cover, I think that'd be the wrong a reworking. Yeah, a reworking. The, the yeah, of one of his dad's songs. I didn't realise his dad's in Coliseum. Yeah. Which they're a prog band, do you know what I'm saying? No, I've never heard Yeah, that. you want to download the Valentine Suite. Oh, right. Great, man. It opens well, I listened with, uh, to the song that his dad did that this is based yeah. on. Yeah, I mean, that's much later, I guess, when right, his dad's right. knocking out stuff that is not as popular, I'm mm. guessing. So you'd heard of Coliseum before this? Yeah, Coliseum right. are a prog band that I like. Yeah, it, it's similar to Limit uh, Limit to Your Love, you know, which is another track on the album, boom, boom, yeah. which is uh, incredible. That's right up there on my iTunes. I've heard that band. before. Yeah, and that's, yeah. And that's, a, that's a, again, cover, reworking of, um, is it Feist? Yeah. Name? Yeah. But you wouldn't know from about 50 seconds of us when you listen to her version, you wouldn't even know it's the same song. He's Manfred Mander. <laughs>
it's one of those sort of things where I'm always trying to not give people credit for covering songs, if despite um, you know the Manfred speaking to Manfred Mann last week, just generally like well like what Manfred Mann says, you didn't write the song, you know you don't get as much credit basically. You Stephen tend to if I say anything like that, you correct me. Well, what does it but mean write a song? What are you talking about when you say that? There's a legal definition and then there's a kind of a cultural definition which is evolving. The legal definition is chords and a melody that you can write down. But of course, looking at jazz, for example, that becomes very kind of loaded because white composers like or white songwriters like Gershwin are getting all the money when, when Miles Davis or whoever it is is essentially creating a whole new text out of this skeleton, you know? So there's clear historical reasons why a chord structure and a melody are um, legally defined as the kind of ur text of a song because they can be represented visually and that is kind of seen as what music is because that is the classical tradition and, and it's notes in a page and this is the reality of music. And also when you want to copyright something you need to get it on a piece of paper, don't you, essentially? Well, yeah, as well as well as just pragmatic reasons yeah. why you know, it makes sense. But, you know, timbre, sound quality, performance, emotion, all the rest of it, they seem to me just as important. So, yeah, that's why I would have an issue with... Also, this, you know, yeah. covering, you know, as you were saying, no, you, you struggle to use the word to describe this. It, you can take a song just completely reappropriate it, can't you? That's the thing. It depends what you're taking from it, how you're doing it. It's not just a case of, you know, I'm going to sing the same words at the same time. And... These words are my own. <laughs> but no, the way he, he covers things or reworks things yeah. is, again, it's unlike anything else I've heard, really. Like, the, what he does to his dad's song is... Um, it's amazing. It's yeah. incredible, isn't it? It's such a beautiful track, man. I imagine, Steve, you've got something on the Wilhelm scream, haven't you? <laughs> so I don't know a lot about music, title. but I do know a lot about uh, you know a lot Chasing Man and uh, Wikipedia. The Wilhelm scream is a very famous sound effect that's turned up in you know, 80% of every film that's ever <laughs> yeah. made. It's literally it's hundreds of films. Yeah, it's just like, you know, if you look at the list online, but it's just this very you standard... Could drop it in. Yeah, we could probably yeah. Uh, yeah, use a Wilhelm scream. I'm not sure where it originates. I mean, they know where it originates. You can, it's on the Wikipedia page. But it's a scream from some film in the 40s or whenever, and it just turns up in everything. Like you can get like compilations on YouTube of like it's in Star Wars and Indiana Jones and literally everything. It's the sort of thing when you first come across it, you're like, is this real? Yeah. yeah. Imagine the thrill on your Steve, your face, Steve, when you first heard this. <laughs> yeah, it was. I just love the idea of in a creative industry like film sort of sound production someone's sort of going guys it's alright we've perfected the screen we don't need to do another one we've got one but what about in this one will it work oh, trust me we've tried it in like six different films keep going keep going and like they're still going going yeah this is you know and obviously as you say from the 40s um, culture, society, technology everything's moved on but they're like this, is, this still works yeah. drop it in seven seconds long let's knock in a Wilhelm screen our closing track, track 10, The Velvet Underground, The Black Angel's Death Song. The myriad choice of his fate set themselves out upon a platform to choose. What had he to lose? Not a ghost bloody country all covered with sleep Where the black angel did weep Not an old city street and he's Gone to choose And war rings 
brother walked on through the night with his hair in his face, long along Smith and cut from the night. A GT. Released in 1967 on the Velvet Underground and Nico album. We started with probably the most famous uh, South London graduates, if you like, and we're ending with probably the most impressive, John Cale, Welsh. A track picked by Morrissey for Desert Island Discs. Oh, really? Yeah, and you only get eight, so... What else did he pick? He picked seven Smith tracks. No, no, no. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure. Sure, okay, you be seven Morrissey I started, I started listening to it just because it was mentioned on this. Um, I can't even remember. I only listened to like two tracks worth. But, um, oh, he picks a Joe Brave song, didn't he? Yeah, he does. Do you know Joe Brave? He's like a glam... A glam yeah. rock guy. He died in the 70s. He died really new, young. Uh, and it's incredible. It, he's really? got this one album and it's so good. I just found the name? J-O-B-R... Oh, Joe Brave. Oh, yeah, sorry, Joe Brave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd do anything for you or to you. What an opening line. He picks a New York Dolls track as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Coronation Street theme tune. No. <laughs> so yeah, this song is uh, one of the ones that's co-written by John Cale and his viola is all over in it. It is. Scrabbling all over it. That was good, man. Let's <laughs> sample that. Um, so he studied music at Goldsmiths. And Did you teach him? Just missed it. <laughs> I presume he was doing viola there, yeah? Because that's his instrument, isn't it? Yeah, among been, many, many you couldn't others. Have do, you couldn't have do, well, it would have been classical at that point. Would it have been a viola heavy? Is, is well, he know? probably would have been in the orchestra and he would have just been doing the general music degree, probably. Viola and hissing into the mic, isn't it? <laughs> the most influential uh, guitar record ever made? Quite possibly, yeah. Yeah. So good, isn't it? It's, that, it's got that line, isn't it, similar to the, the, the Pistols gig at the Lesser Free Trade Hall, you know. Yeah. The first Velvet Underground album sold 5,000 copies, but all those Every single one. formed a band, yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember reading about them when I was really young, and for about 10 years, I just didn't know who... I just... Because I, I loved R.E.M. when I was really, really young, because my older brother did, and uh, Velvet Underground, because they did uh, Pale Blue Eyes, and they did these covers, and but I just was so mystified, the Velvet Underground, who the hell are these people? I thought they were some terrorist organisations. So <laughs> took me a long time. I thought they were glam when I was a kid. I thought I always had them in with like sweet and uh, oh, yeah, yeah. because of the name. I just yeah. imagined them wearing, you know, sort of, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but sort of velour flares yeah. and stuff. But not and not and then you see a photograph. Yeah, they're more threatening just, to me. I think I saw a photo yeah. and I thought Ooh, they're like the a street gang. Look yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, we could sort of go on all day about how brilliant this record is, but uh, this particular track, do you think it's a highlight? No, I think in a way it is because I love the the violent forcing together of the of the viola and the Bob Dylan stuff. The Bob Dylan stuff <laughs> I can really take or leave though. I mean, come on, the lyrics and the the, the delivery. I mean, I lovely read, but this track if it didn't have oh, that really scribbles it. over it, really, yeah. I, for me, if it didn't have the scribbling over it with the viola. Because it has that, there's a real tension to it, and I it's absolutely love it. Letting out. What's that other sound? Just, What's the high scratching like, from the viola? Isn't it? But it's like a. Tsh- it just feels like it sounds like something's been. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what I loved about it. It was such a sort of thing where you're listening to it going, "What's that? Yeah, it's great." I, don't, I, I know what you mean about the the sort of. Do you have the? Do either of you have the lyrics there? Because they're just common. No, I mean, but I mean, there's there's bits and pieces that 
some of them are, are more sort of vague than others, isn't it? There's like references to like brown snow, which you know doesn't take too much digging on. <laughs> no, but it's it's the deliberate kind of mystification in the lyrics, where it's and then these useless and simple rhymes. It's so Dylan-esque. It's 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 it's, it's I think it's deliberate parody, and then also the music, of course, because it's just. It's the repeated chord, repeated chord, it's, and it, the delivery is so grainy and until any way. I almost kind of love it for how, how kind of brazen it is. Did you read about the uh, Café Bazaar gigs where they used it? Oh, they did this over and over. Yeah, they did it as a, use it as a I love all that. Yeah. yeah. I'd like to see an hour-long version of it. <laughs> I don't know if I would. 26-minute <laughs> version of Days to Confuse, and that's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Heroin, I think it's my favourite track on there. Oh, yeah. But... Uh, you know, we needed to go with the John Cale track, didn't we? Yes. Are you a big well, fan Venus of... and Ferrers would have been a good one as well. Dissonance. What's that mean? His viola created dissonance on the track, Stephen. I, I saw. I opened the Wikipedia page for it, but I, I won't read it. I'll ask Stephen. To <laughs> what that so means. dissonance is is uh, okay. So consonance, dissonance and consonance are two ways to describe sounds, and their meaning changes over time. So, uh, in the Middle Ages, what we would now call Consonant was called dissonance. So certain intervals. So sing, sing a note. Uh, sing a lower note. Uh, so, so hold that note. Uh, so that's a third, right? That's a major third. You, well, you were doing. We that. just sang together a major third. So do it again. Right. Uh, now do it again. So that's a major third. That's that's a consonance. Oh, I've just changed the note. Over there. That's a consonant, right? Mm-hmm. That's a consonant sound. Or at least that's what we would now describe as a consonant sound. But thirds, that relationship. So do it again and I'll show you a minor third. Oh. Oh. It's a minor third. So the other one was oh, and that one's oh. Minor third, major third. They were described as dissonances in the Middle, Age, Middle Ages. Now they're seen as consonances. Now dissonances are, so do it again. Oh. It's a tritone. It's a really famous one. In the Middle Ages, that was banned. That was called the devil in music. <laughs> <laughs> I think it off. He's done it. See why? <laughs> that interval was banned. Um, nowadays, it's still it's seen For as everyone dissonance. Everyone just rejected it. <laughs> so, um, so dissonance and consonance are ways to describe um, two two or more sounds when they come together, um, and it's about the scale and it's about intervals. So certain intervals are consonant. So major thirds, perfect fifths. Perfect fifth is the most obvious interval. So do 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 the note again. So that's the most famous interval. Now. Yeah, oh, most songs are built around that. This song goes from the home chord. Yeah, it's creating a tension, a sense of um, direction. There's a directionality to it. So consonants and dissonance are ways of building variety around those kinds of progressions, and it's using those intervals. See what I mean? So dissonance, dissonance can be um, certain kinds of inter- intervals, but it can also be a kind of a microtonal thing where it's not. So sing that again. So if I go. Uh, those are equal temperament intervals. I mean, they're not perfectly tuned, but they're normal intervals. But there's lots of uh, loads of notes in between those. Between those two notes. So he's scratching away at the viola. So he's producing all these notes which wouldn't fit into a really well-produced consonant kind of harmony. 
So dissonance can also be bidach. All right, so there's different kinds of dissonance. Um, I wish this every week, Steve, ends with a musical. Uh, yeah, two in a row, isn't it? <laughs> so what they probably mean is, is the way he's scratching away on his viola. Are you into his uh, subsequent uh, career? Well, I love him because he's one of those um, he's one of those gateways from pop to um, to kind of what you might call art music. So you know, he did a lot in the theatre of eternal music in the sixties with Lamont Young. So he was in his thing where he did drones for, for six hours. Lamont Young's a composer who lives on a, a different time cycle to the rest of us. I think I might have mentioned this in one of the podcasts before. Maybe, maybe not. But he lives on, he does 27-hour days, and his year has got a different amount of um, days in it. Um, and he, him and his wife live in this space that they, um, the Dream House in New York, and you can go visit if you want, and they've, they've drones playing the whole time. It's all very kind of spiritual. Um, but a colleague of mine wrote a book about Lamont Young was one of the people he wrote the book about and he went out and visited him loads of times and said it was just a nightmare <laughs> <laughs> but um, so, so John Cale was doing loads of stuff with them in the 60s and I love that because it's a like with kind of Sonic Youth a little bit later a lot of people criticise Sonic Youth but they do, they, are, they do serve as this useful kind of fulcrum into all these other stuff and Velvet Underground are really good examples of that and John Cale is the kind of reason that that happens with them so that they're, they're kind of the, the pop art or, or the anti-art artists, or as they were called, anti-elite elitists. Because that's the thing, there's great pop songs on this album as well. Yeah. But then, suddenly, as you say, it's a dissonant viola. Yeah. Which, you know, you know, people talk about, oh, the Beatles retired from, uh, you know, performing yeah. live to go immerse themselves in the studio. And like, yeah, and do some good stuff, but they weren't bringing out dissonant violas, were they? You still had space for people to move into, to bring in these ideas that come from a completely different kind yeah. of music. Yeah, there's just a great tension there between these different practices, isn't there? Pop songs, Dylan, and then... <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I just love them. Uh, it's a shame we don't have any music to close out with. Who didn't make the playlist, Steve? Lyndon Quasi Johnson, England is a bitch. Just put that on, yeah. <laughs> England is a bitch. Bitch, 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 bitch. England is a bitch, 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 bitch. When me just come to London town, they used to work on the underground. But working on the underground, you don't get to know your way around. England is a bitch. There's no escaping it. England is a bitch. There's no running away from it.